five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. This week's podcast is the last of our coverage from the recent International Astronautical Congress in Washington. It is Plenary 6, Europa Clipper, making a mission to understand our place in the universe. Europa is one of the moons of Jupiter and has fascinated us since Galileo discovered it in 1610. In popular science fiction, Sir Arthur C. Clarke made it the centerpiece of his novel, 2010, Odyssey 2, which was published in 1982. Odyssey 2 was a follow-up to the original and classic 1968 movie, 2001, A Space Odyssey, which was directed by Stanley Kubrick. Real life, it seems, does imitate art. Scientists have long speculated that Europa might have an ocean, and accumulated data now strongly suggest Europa has a subsurface saltwater ocean. That ocean could harbor life, which makes the moon a prime target for new exploration missions. Europa is slightly smaller than the Earth's moon, but scientists think it could have twice as much ocean water as Earth. Today's podcast will provide insight into Europa and NASA's Europa Clipper mission. It should also be noted that the European Space Agency is also sending a mission to Europa, the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer mission. Both of these missions are orbiters, but scientists hope that one day we'll send a lander to the surface of Europa. The panel is moderated by Deepak Srinivasan, Europa Clipper Telecommunications Manager, John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. The panelists include Robert Bob Papalardo, Europa Clipper Project Scientist from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Thomas Magner, Manager, John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory, Karen Kirby, Europa Clipper Deputy Project System Engineer, John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory, Jennifer Dooley, Europa Clipper Project Systems Engineer, NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and Bill Nye from the Planetary Society. We've edited the recording to keep the podcast within a reasonable length. Listen in. Uh, Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the sixth plenary session of this 70th International Astronautical Congress. Uh, We're here to talk about the Europa Clipper mission, and you probably all knew that already. So my name is Deepak Srinivasan. My role on this mission is the telecommunications system engineer. So it's my team's and my job to make sure we can both talk to the spacecraft, as well as make sure that all of the data that's just waiting to be uncovered on Europa makes it down here for all of us to learn. Now, Europa has consistently ranked as a top priority in NASA's decadal missions. The thing is, to actually execute a mission to make it happen is really, really hard. So that's why NASA has asked not one, but two organizations. The NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, as well as the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory to execute this mission. The theme of this Congress has been the the power of the past and the promise of the future. 
So between our two organizations, we have a combined 159 years of spaceflight heritage. So we're going to leverage all of that to promise that we're going to get data back from Europa that's going to literally change our understanding of life itself. To set the stage, I want to bring it back to Earth, our own home planet, the most precious piece of real estate in the solar system. I kind of like it. Now, Earth, as nice of a day as it is outside, is a planet of extremes. We have tundra that's been frozen for millennium. We have searing hot deserts with only trace amounts of water. And we have places like this, the depths of our oceans, beneath miles and miles of water, denied sunlight, hydrothermal vents heating up the water to more than 400 degrees Celsius. But the pressure of those same miles of water doesn't allow the water to boil. So this is, this is extreme, extreme areas. Yet, wherever there's water, no matter how extreme an environment, we find things like this, life. Life not only exists, but you see it just flourish. Wherever you find water, you're going to find the most incredible things. Now, Earth is not the only ocean world that we have in our solar system. There's several ocean worlds out there, many of them orbiting our, our, our icy moons. Now, this is a really exciting time for all of us. We're on the cusp of exploring many of these moons. We have the Dragonfly mission that's going to be exploring Titan soon. We have ESA's JUICE mission that's also going to be exploring these moons. And we have the Europa Clipper. So to talk more about Clipper, we have this exemplary plant panel of people where we're going we're to discuss all different aspects of the mission. We're going to start off with Bob Papalardo from JPL. He is the project scientist for Clipper, so it's his job to make sure that we're deploying the right instruments and using them in the right way to answer all the questions that we want to have answers to. Sorry. After him is Karen Kirby from APL. She's the deputy project system engineer, and for the last several years, she has been instrumental in designing the spacecraft that's going to be able to withstand the harsh environments. After Karen is Jennifer Dooley of JPL. She is the project system engineer of this mission. So she has overall technical authority across all aspects of our mission. Tom Magner from APL is the assistant project manager, and he's going to talk about how we brought together this fantastic team of people to pull this off and how we collaborate. Lastly, we have Bill Nye, the CEO of the Planetary Society, and he's going to talk about how Europa has just captured our imaginations and how we can advocate for these missions to continue to happen. So with that, I would say we're going to dive into the science, but that's just too bad of a pun, so I'm not going to say that, but here's Bob. Clicker. Clicker. Yeah. Uh, oh, this is it. Here, oh, you can go there. Good afternoon. Let's see. There we go. In 1610, Galileo, Galileo Galilei turned his rudimentary telescope to Jupiter. And what he found, he sketched there, that there were four large moons that night to night he could observe orbiting around Jupiter. He found that Jupiter was a center of motion and that Copernicus, 50 years earlier, was right. Galileo had changed our world forever. The four Galilean moons, as they're now known, are named for him, have been revealed by spacecraft, uh, the Galileo spacecraft, in fact, 
which orbited Jupiter from 95 to 2003, gathering data about these four moons and the giant planet itself. Well, one of these moons, Europa, has the potential to change our world again. Europa has a bizarre surface, much different from what we see on our Earth or on our moon. Uh, most of what we see here is ice. That bright stuff is ice. There are not many craters, so the surface has been repaved in the last 65 million years, since the time dinosaurs roamed our Earth. There are ridges and chaotic terrain and these freckles that are known as, by their Latin name, lenticulae, uh, that, that pepper the surface. And this geology in ice hints of an ocean deep below the surface. The interior of Europa, here's what we think we know about it. We think there's an ice shell about 20 kilometers thick, 13 miles, above an ocean about 80 kilometers thick, in turn above a rocky mantle and an iron core. So what allows Europa out there in the frigid outer solar system to have an ocean beneath its surface? Well, Europa orbits Jupiter in a somewhat eccentric orbit, slightly non-round orbit, and as it does, it goes around every 85 hours, every three and a half Earth days. It flexes. When it gets a little closer to Jupiter, it stretches out a little farther from Jupiter, it contracts, and this flexing back and forth every 85 hours generates heat gener it, from friction. So this tidal heating is what maintains an ocean at Europa. If we were to gather all of Earth's water, ocean water, into a ball, we'd see that Europa's suspected ocean water is about twice that volume. So Europa is the size of Earth's moon, yet contains more water than all of Earth's oceans combined. The best evidence that we have today at Europa, while some evidence comes from the geology and some comes from the, the math of calculating how much tidal heating there should be, the best evidence comes from the magnetic measurements at Europa that were made with the Galileo spacecraft's magnetometer. Europa is moving through Jupiter's magnetic field as it orbits around Jupiter, immense magnetic field. Well, if you carry your keys or your cell phone through a metal detector at the airport, the metal detector beeps because the metal in your pocket conducts electricity and sets up a secondary magnetic field. It makes the metal detector goes off, go off. Europa is moving through Jupiter's magnetic field, and it essentially set off the Galileo spacecraft's magnetometer because Europa's interior is able to conduct electricity because of a saltwater ocean beneath Europa's surface. On Earth, just about everywhere there is liquid water there's evidence for life, including on the ocean floors, as Deepak showed, 
where water seeps into cracks in the rock and where that rock is hot at the mid-ocean ridges, that water becomes charged in nutrients that then come back out into the water and condense in these clouds of black smoke, as it's known. And on the ocean floors, the chemical energy from that material powers bizarre life, giant tube worms and crabs. In a place that's completely devoid of sunlight, life flourishes on the Earth. The same could be true of Europa's ocean, which seems to have the so-called ingredients for life. Liquid water, much more than all the Earth's oceans. The elements from which Uh, organic molecules can be built, things like C-H-O-N-P-S. And chemical energy, that is the the energy that could potentially power metabolism. The surface of Europa is very oxidizing, we think, very oxygen-rich, and the ocean floor is probably reducing hydrogen-rich. So if we can get those, if Europa can get those oxidants from the surface into the ocean, then there could be the chemical energy that could power life. And then finally, we suspect that Europa's ocean is ancient, that it's been simmering for four billion years, and the level of current activity and past activity is something that's relevant to habitability through time. So these are the big picture issues that we we have an idea of, but we need to test with the Europa Clipper mission. So the mission has several objectives. We want to understand the ice shell and the ocean of the moon. How thick is the ice? How saline is the ocean? What are the mechanisms that can get stuff from the surface, including oxidants, down into the ocean and vice versa? So when we look at the surface, are we able to decipher the ocean properties? We want to understand the composition of Europa. What is that dark reddish stuff that's all over the surface? What is it telling us about the nature of the ocean and about how materials are processed on the surface? The bizarre geology, these double ridges, the chaotic regions, what forms the geology and how is liquid water involved in that? How active is Europa today? From the Hubble Space Telescope, we have an idea that there, is, there are glows on the limb of Europa of hydrogen and oxygen. Is that indicating that there is active venting at Europa today of liquid water from the subsurface into space? And like Enceladus at Saturn has plumes, and Cassini was able to fly through them, can we do the same with the Europa Clipper mission to sample Europa's interior material directly? And as we gather all this data, we learn about areas that might be especially interesting to explore in more detail in the future if we were to send a landed mission to Europa sometime. So that's the big picture science for Europa, a fascinating place that can tell us about how common life might be in our solar system and therefore throughout the universe. So next, Karen Kirby is going to tell us a bit about the Europa Clipper spacecraft. Okay, Um, NASA has selected the science investigations uh, for the Europa Clipper mission to address the decadal priorities for exploration of Europa. 
We have 10 science instruments that are currently accommodated on our spacecraft. Um, and I'll introduce these instruments briefly and tell you what we're going to learn from each of them about Europa. Ooh, okay. So I'm going to start with our in situ instruments. MassSpex is a mass spectrometer that will sniff the atmosphere, and SUDA is a dust analyzer that will collect particles that are ejected from the surface of Europa. These will both provide composition information about the atmosphere as the spacecraft flies through it. Next we have um, magnetometers that are going to be measuring the magnetic field around Europa. And PIMS, which is a Faraday cup instrument that will collect particles from the plasma environment as we fly through, these two together will provide ocean property information such as thickness and salinity. Our remote sensing instruments, I'm going to start with um, a couple of spectrograph sensors. We have both an UV and an IR spectrograph sensor, and these are going to provide composition and activity information about the surface of Europa. UVS is also our plume search instrument that will be monitoring for plumes so that we could um, further investigate plumes on future flybys. And MISE will provide a map of organic compounds on the surface of Europa. Our imaging instruments are next. We have um, ice, the ice investigation includes both a narrow angle camera and a wide angle camera. These cameras will provide almost global imaging. They'll be imaging over 90% of the surface of Europa, and some of this at very high resolution. Um, E-Themis is our thermal imager, which will be looking for hot spots on the surface. They'll be measuring surface temperatures on the order of 100 Kelvin to 2 Kelvin precision and accuracy. So with both of these instruments together, we'll be going after geology of Europa, and we'll be um, um, obtaining global maps of the surface of Europa. And these also will be used to support our final instrument, which is our ice-penetrating radar, Reason. It's a dual-frequency band sounding radar that will be penetrating the ice on Europa and will be providing information about the ice properties and also um, targeting the um, understanding the ice subsurface ice-ocean interface um, on Europa. So we have a very rich suite of instruments on this mission. Um, and I'm going to switch gears now and talk a little bit about the spacecraft design. So just for kicks, this is a standard U.S.-sized basketball court. Since we're in the U.S., it's appropriate to have the U.S.-sized court. And here's our spacecraft. So you can see it's huge. Um, these with our solar panels fully extended, it's on the order of 30 meters in length. We expect this to be the largest spacecraft in deep space when we launch. Um, it's a challenge to build something this big, as many of you know. But really, our biggest challenge is surviving the radiation environment. Because Europa is in Jupiter's magnetosphere, and the magnetosphere um, accelerates and traps high-energy particles, it provides a very intense radiation environment. For, and this has been an issue for close-up exploration of Europa for a long time. So I'll talk more about how we're going to survive in this radiation environment, how our spacecraft will survive, and our instruments. 
Um, but first I'll, I'll also talk about another challenge we have, which is the thermal um, extremes that we'll see during this mission. We're designed to survive hot temperatures up to 100 degrees C on our solar panels down to minus 230 degrees C range, which is what we'll be seeing when, we're, uh, when the spacecraft is at Europa at 5.5 AU in the Jupiter environment um, and during our longer eclipse periods. So we have radiation um, and cold temperatures combined. This provides a very challenging environment to operate and survive through. One of the things that we're doing um, on this mission to help with that is we have, we're using a radiation vault design. If you look on top of the spacecraft, you see sort of a rectangular shape. This is our radiation vault. It has um, most of the spacecraft electronics are housed in this vault, roughly half-inch thick um, aluminum and tantalum layers. Um, provide that shielding for us and really knock down the radiation environment for the sensitive electronics. Um, what really, though, makes this mission possible, I'm going to say, is this flyby mission concept. There have been studies for missions to Europa for many years that have been going into orbit around Europa. Um, and this really provides a very short mission because of that intensive radiation environment. So what we're doing with this mission that's really a game changer is we are going, staying in Jupiter orbit and then targeting a very close approach flyby of Europa on every orbit. So we dip into that high intense radiation environment, we turn on all of our science instruments, collect a, a lot of data, and then move away from that environment where we then send the data down to Earth, um, recharge our batteries, and get ready for the next flyby. And you can see the Geiger counter is attempting to show that we really get that radiation dose in um, spurts as we do those flybys. Um, and then there's a dosimeter showing the total radiation dose. We're building that radiation dose up gradually over the course of the mission. And this way, we can spend years exploring, uh, many years in this environment, exploring Europa rather than days or, or months. So Jennifer's going to tell us more about how we're going to fly this mission. All right. So first, I'll give you a little bit more context and kind of a frame of reference for the spacecraft. Um, so we talked about um, the size of it a little bit. Let me give you some scale for the mass of it. Everything we build, the structure, the propulsion system, all the electronics, the instruments, together that weighs about three tons, 3,000 kilograms. And we add about as much uh, fuel to that. So all total, it's about 6,000 kilograms. And for reference, that's about the size of an African elephant. The other thing, uh, we already looked at how large the solar rays are. Um, the uh, we're so much further away from the sun at Jupiter, and over the course of the lifetime, the radiation environment takes such a toll on the uh, efficiency of the solar cells that by the end of the mission, that solar ray produces about 700 watts. And for reference, the hairdryer in my hotel room this morning uh, operates on about 1,900 watts. So this is less than half of the energy we use there. Um, Let's see, so we have a suite of instruments uh, that Karen talked about. There's a set of remote sensing instruments, and those are largely mounted on a single deck that we, when we uh, fly by Europa, point directly at the surface. 
Uh, and we also have a suite of the in situ or the sort of direct sampling instruments that we point in the direction that we're traveling at that point of closest approach. We have large deployable uh, boom antennas for the radar, and we also have a five meter boom for the magnetometer, which as we talked about earlier was uh, one of the key measurements that pointed to this ocean on Europa. On the right, you can see uh, an inset from the video Karen just showed. Each one of those orbits is a petal. Together, they look kind of like a flower. And that set of petals is a tour. The team has done a variety of tours, but they share some characteristics. And we're always working on those and getting those evaluated by the science team. Each one of those petals is about 14 days. Uh, we, as Karen said, we come in, we dip a toe into the radiation environment, we collect a lot of data quickly, we come back out and collect solar, uh, collect on the solar ray to build up our, on our batteries, we return data back to Earth, that takes a long time, and uh, we're also dissipating some charge that's built up over the course of that exposure, uh, and that helps us avoid damage to some of the components. Uh, what I'm going to do next is show you, for all of those pieces of the pedal, we call it the encounter, that are very close to Europa, I'm going to switch now and show you just those segments of the pedals uh, on a Europa-centric frame so you can see how over time, over about three years, we build up this uh, global coverage. So what you're looking at here, right, we were looking at a projection before, what you can see is that for each one of those petals, uh, the mission design team is varying the latitude, they're, they're varying the cant angle. You can also see that there's much um, uh, fuller coverage on one side and its opposite side. Europa is tidally locked, like our Earth, uh, Earth's moon, and that means that the same side is always facing Jupiter. Uh, and it's just the, a feature of the way the mission design uh, works, the way the tour works, that you get most of it on the side that is facing Jupiter and the side that's opposite it. And what this gives us at the closest approach in these little segments of the petals, uh, the warmer colors, so the red, is about uh, 25 kilometers from the surface. And it goes out in the white to about 4,000 kilometers. And so when we're very close, we can get high-resolution uh, images. And when we're further away, they're a little bit lower resolution, but we have very good coverage. Uh, we get larger areas. And what you're seeing on the right, uh, those are projected um, classes of measurement on a Europa map that give us a sense for how that coverage builds up over the course of the tour. And you can kind of see some you know, line features that sort of match up with these segments of tours. All right, so now what I'm gonna go to next is uh, I'm gonna take you on sort of a day in the life of one of these segments on the tour. The, um, the uh, basically there's a lot of activity that happens quickly. Let's see. Okay. So what I'm going to show you here, we're going to start um, with this video. We'll flip to a little bit different point in the video when I hit the next button. And we're going to start having just completed our last uh, downlink to Earth. Uh, 
On the lower right, you'll see a little um, map that shows the relative position of the spacecraft with Europa and Jupiter. In the top left, there's a little ticker for the um, uh, altitude and the relative velocity with Europa. And on the lower left, there's kind of a key for color. It's hard to keep up a little bit. Um, I, I know I watched this video many, many, many times trying to pick out all the pieces. So I'm going to talk sort of in a little bit more generalities as we go through this. Um, but you can just see for the different colors, those are different instrument measurements. All right, so this video starts about 13 hours out uh, from closest approach. We've just turned away from our Earth point, uh, and we have oriented so that the remote sensing instruments, all those cameras and other imagers and spectrometers, are pointing at Europa. We have our, um, our uh, magnetometer is on, and our plasma instrument is collecting data. We're taking uh, UV scans and images, and we off point sometimes for calibrations. Now we've reoriented the solar rays so that when we flip, we'll have the radar antennas pointed uh, towards Europa when we get there. Let's see. And so we start to take um, more images. It started off with more of um, ultraviolet and uh, imagers, and now we're adding some of the um, thermal imaging, spectroscopy um, with MISE. And as we're getting close, you can see that the pace starts to pick up. There are some coordinated measurements. We're doing some wide, um, uh, wide angle measurements and finer, finer cut. We're starting to come in close, and pretty soon we're going to see the radar come on. And now we're at closest approach. And what happens on the outgoing uh, leg is very analogous. So we use both of those uh, to, to collect all the images that we're trying to get. Um, you can see we're producing most of our data very quickly around this point. This whole video represents about 20 hours when that whole orbit, um, that whole pedal is about 14 days. On the outbound, there are also some differences having to do with setting up for a uh, trajectory uh, cleanup maneuver and also um, starting to uh, uh, prioritize the data and sort it for uh, eventual downlink on the three-meter antenna. So there we go. And essentially what we're doing then is we're catching our breath, starting to send that data down, and planning for the next, four, you know, for 14 days from now when we do our next encounter and the 14 days after that and after that. So with that, I will turn it over to Tom. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the teamwork and partnerships that we formed to uh, execute this mission. As complicated and as large as it is, we felt teamwork and partnerships were going to be very important. So one of the things we did is partnered on the development of the spacecraft testing and uh, uh, integration with the instruments. And we, that partnership was between JPL and APL. And so what JPL does is builds the avionics module that Karen talked about that sits on top of the spacecraft. There's a boom that gets that magnetometer away from the spacecraft, a launch, ve launch vehicle separation system, an adapter, all of the flight software. And then the way we do thermal on the uh, spacecraft is a heat redistribution system, or HRS. So rather than heaters and radiators, we use uh, heat that is generated in the avionics vault and spread that to the rest of the spacecraft to keep them all within flight allowable temperatures. At APL, Deepak is building the RF module. Um, 
in that, we've also partnered with Langley to test the high-gain antenna. That's a three-meter KA X-band antenna. We're building a propulsion module, which sits in the middle of the spacecraft there, that basically holds almost uh, all of the components of the spacecraft together. Embedded in there is the propulsion subsystem, and we partnered with uh, Goddard and Marshall to do that, Goddard to build it, Marshall to do uh, component testing. The solar array we're procuring from the Dutch, Dutch Air, Airbus. Uh, we're building a radiation environmental monitor that'll allow us to keep track of how much radiation the spacecraft has accumulated through uh, the various orbits of uh, Europa. And we're gonna build the electronics that drive that HRS uh, heat redistribution system. Jointly with JPL leading, we're going to integrate and test the spacecraft. Then for instruments, we have eight instruments that are PI instruments that were selected by NASA headquarters, and one instrument that is a project-provided instrument. So starting on the left, we have the Reason, which is the ice-penetrating radar provided uh, through Don Blankenship at University of Texas. There's two instruments that are coming from John Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, the Imager and the PIMS instrument. Southwest Research Institute is providing the mass spec and the UV instrument. Uh, JPL is providing the shortwave infrared spectrometer. Uh, let's see, University of Colorado is providing the dust analyzer. Arizona State University is providing the thermal imager. Then the one instrument that is a project provided one is uh, the magnetometer. Margaret Kilvison is the science lead for that team that's helping uh, the project determine how to build that instrument. Then uh, we formed also, I'll say, mission uh, partnerships. So again, JPL and APL collaborated and are partnering under uh, JPL's lead center to do all of the project management for the mission. Uh, drive the science, do all the system engineering, come up with how we're gonna navigate the uh, spacecraft, how we're gonna operate the spacecraft, uh, oversee the payload management, and eventually operate the uh, spacecraft in orbit. And then you can see here, so we're a, a very diverse, let's say, uh, a spread throughout the country between the Goddard, uh, the field centers, JPL, APL, and all the instrument providers. So one of the things this is, is it becomes a challenge for all of us, is how we communicate, how we collaborate. So we, we use obviously all of the usual techniques of WebEx and other methods, face-to-face -face meetings, but we've also come up with some unique uh, things we do. So what you see here, I'm gonna start the movie in a second. This is a, a VR version of our spacecraft as we're designing it. So you can see uh, kind of in the lighter color the spacecraft. Um, the people you see are APL people, because this is, this is actually done at APL, but also done at JPL. And you will start seeing, and I'll point out, JPL people who are participating from JPL in this session where they're talking through some engineering problems and are participating through uh, VR. So here I start it. So everywhere you see a name and you eventually see like a little headset 
is a JPL person looking at that model. They're talking to each other. They're uh, pointing out maybe a problem with running a harness and whatever. So we can get a lot of work done in an environment like this. To try to do this over a, a phone where both of you are looking at 2D uh, PowerPoint just wouldn't cut it. So this is the one of many ways that we've come up with doing these things. This has been very effective for us, so we're very happy with that. So with that, I will turn it over to Bill. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Greetings. You're welcome. No, you, no, really, seriously, no. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Bill Nye from the Planetary Society. The Planetary Society, if you're not familiar with us, is the world's largest uh, independent space organization. And we advocate for space missions. And we are honored, honored to be part of the Europa Clipper because uh, there's reasons to do these missions that are just deep, deep within us. And you can talk about budgets, you can talk about hardware, and that is, of course, fascinating to me. But in the bigger picture, <clears throat> there are two questions that everybody asks. And if you meet somebody who says that he or she has never asked these questions, they're lying to you. And if you're in middle school, they're lying to your face, which is, that's way more serious. Uh, and the first question is, where did we all come from? Where did we all come What are humans doing here? What are shrimp doing on the ocean floor? How did we all get here? And then the second question is, are we the only ones? Are we alone in the cosmos? And these questions are, are fundamental. And this mission like Europa Clipper is how we work toward answering them. My friends, if we were to define, to find evidence of life, let alone something alive, on another world, it would change this one. Everybody on Earth would feel differently about being a living thing in the universe. It would change the course of human history. We mentioned earlier about Copernicus or Galileo. These investigators changed the way everybody thinks about our place in space. And what is wonderful and charming and compelling about missions like Europa Clipper is not an individual that did it, not an individual person who made these discoveries, although Margie Killison, uh, using magnetometers, discovered the ocean on Europa, the sub-ice uh, salt water on Europa. This mission is done by a team of people, an international team of people. That's because space, really, space exploration brings out the best in us. So if you are interested in birds, you join the Audubon Society. If you're interested in uh, certain environmental issues, you join uh, the Sierra Club. If you're interested in space, we recommend you join the Planetary Society. And what we do is we innovate. We, uh, tomorrow we'll have uh, a brief thing about our spacecraft. We educate. We have, I believe, first-class uh, journalists who will talk about this mission from now until when it flies and all the discoveries it made, and we will put images from this mission on our website and so on in the coming decade. And then uh, we advocate. We spend time uh, in uh, various government organizations advocating for the importance of these missions because what we spend on space is so small compared to what we get out of it when it comes to any mission to any planetary body. So as I say, I'm honored to be here. 
Thank you all very much for including us because when we explore space, we solve problems that have never been solved before. And I have been asked many, many times over the years, why do you, why do you build a mission like Europa Clipper? What, Europa Clipper, what are you gonna find out there? And the answer is, we don't know what we're gonna find, that's why we're going. And uh, as uh, one of the founders of the Planetary Society, Bruce Murray, Bruce Murray was head of the Jet Propulsion Lab during the, those uh, extraordinary missions, Viking landing on the, on the Martian surface and Voyager missions, which are still flying on the, out, the outer, outer, outermost reaches of the solar system. Uh, uh, he apparently was in meetings in the 1960s when one of the Ranger spacecraft, this was a spacecraft, I was a little kid, I was literally on my knees watching on all three networks, which is all we had, uh, the lunar surface coming up with, on live television, they would smash into the lunar surface. One of these spacecraft was sent to Mars. And in the early days, apparently people suggested that you don't really need a camera, you don't need cameras. Pictures would be a publicity stunt be for the public. You imagine a space program without pictures? I mean, who would care? And so we will send back, Europa Clipper will send back images and data that will just change the way everybody feels about us and our place in the solar system. Well, that's a wrap on this podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca. I read and answer all your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter, at Canada in Space, and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook. Regardless of which app you use to listen to us, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate our podcast and write a review. Of course, that's only if you like us. Your rating and review will help us in getting the podcast widely listened to. And hey, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq. Lastly, if you haven't listened to the latest episode of our new podcast, Terranauts, what are you waiting for? Host Ian Christie is a natural interviewer who knows how to tease good stories from those who work every day in space, but don't go to space. Terranauts is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite app. Listen to it now. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.